Welcome to this Acadia Divinity College Chapel podcast. I am Stuart Blythe, a member of the faculty ADC and the Dean of Chapel. Here, you'll get a chance to hear perceptive and powerful sermons which were delivered by staff, faculty, students, alumni and guests as part of our weekly Wednesday Chapel services. I've come to expect that I would do the first chapel. Um, <laughs> but you know, I don't feel so badly because I, I encountered, encountered a seminary the other day um, online where they have a weekly president's chapel and the president speaks every week. Um, I would think that we would find that a bit challenging in some ways, not because I don't have lots to say, you'll discover I have plenty to say, um, but to dig into the word in the way that we would love to see the word expounded in this place uh, with our uh, reverence for the way the word continues to speak uh, into our lives. We need to spend that time in preparation. And, and so, you know, I'm mindful that I speak today with uh, Pastor Len in the room who just on Sunday said, I don't care if you're the president of Acadia Divinity College, you better not come up here without a word from the word. <clears throat> so. So <laughs> I was online and I quickly typed in just for the record, I would never do that. Um, but if we, if we take this place seriously as a place of formation, as a place of community formation, as a place at the heart of the college where we worship together and where we wait on a word from God, then we have to take very seriously what happens when we step into this place. Um, and it's for that reason that I am always humbled and um, as well as welcome the opportunity to speak because it's an opportunity to dig into the Word of God. Um, and uh, it doesn't matter if you're a new student or if you've been in this place for many, many years, when your New Testament prof shows up when you're speaking, there is still a certain, uh, it's not a trepidation anymore, I wouldn't say. Um, but you want, you want, to show that what they've poured into your life has been worthwhile. And I would say in every way it has been, uh, whether my exposition of the scripture uh, demonstrates that today or not. So we welcome you here, um, Alison Trites, who is a faithful attender. If you're wondering who he is, he is a um, professor emeritus of the New Testament here, and uh, you would do well to have his ear occasionally at lunch. Um, much wisdom to share and just love for Jesus. And we're always glad when you're here with us, Allison. Thank you. We're going to read scripture, just two verses from Colossians 3. Normally, I wouldn't just choose two verses like that, <clears throat> but, um, but I have today. So Colossians 3, 22 to 24. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, not with a slavery performed merely for looks to please people, but wholeheartedly fearing the Lord. Whatever task you must do, work as if your soul depends on it, as for the Lord and not for humans. Since you know that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you serve the Lord Christ. Amen. Now, my week last week was punctuated by two deaths. At the beginning of the week, it was the Queen, Queen Elizabeth II in her 96th year, a world leader, longest serving monarch, a woman, a representative of tradition that includes also colonial rule and its horrific abuses. On a political level, I am not a monarchist, but on a personal level, I have to confess I liked the queen. 
Um, I like that she spoke boldly of a personal faith. And I like that she waved to me once on the Queensway in Ottawa when I had a break from classes and uh, she was heading to the airport. Uh, she worked and she worked hard. Imagine this, the year that she turned 90, she carried out 341 engagements, more than Prince William, Kate and Prince Harry all combined. Imagine that. She carried out over 100 just last year and was working two days before her death, meeting the new British Prime Minister and asking her to form a government. Always, she carried herself with a balance of real humanity and the dignity of office. Her work was her duty, and her duty included an awful lot of work. The second death came at the end of the same week. It was a friend and colleague who was just a few years younger than me, a scholar, a pastor, someone who loved people and poured his life into them. Reading and hearing the tributes to Brad Knoll have been interesting to me. It seemed he was there for everyone and their children, encouraging them, challenging them, leading them, nudging them. He not only collected degrees with two masters and two doctorates, three of those from Acadia Divinity College, but poured himself into ministry and into people. And Brad, in my encounters with him, never seemed hassled by all the work he was engaged in. He just never seemed hassled by it. Um, sure, uh, he could get hassled by some of the same things that annoyed me, and I've uh, called him a, a partner in ecclesial crime, you know, churches that get stuck in tradition rather than grow with the spirit, for example. But when it came to his work and to his ministry, he just seemed to get on with things, with a love for life and a sense of the joy of it all. You know people like that, I'm sure. As he posted his piano pieces in Pentecostal style to encourage others when things seemed especially challenging, I always looked forward to those. He poured himself out, he worked very hard, but he always seemed to have time for the music. And he loved the music rather than despised the work, and the work I knew him to have a deep joy in. In between the loss of these two people, these two markers in the week, comes TikTok. <laughs> That's right, it's corn. Anyone? Anyone? <laughs> if you don't know what that is, well, it's, you missed it. Um, <clears throat> what I want to mention from TikTok is a trend that's actually spilling over into other social med media and wider culture, and it's the phenomenon known as quiet quitting. Have you heard that? Quiet quitting. Quiet quitting is the idea that workers decide to do only the most basic aspects of their jobs, never going over and above, never committing to more than they're contractually required to do, sort of in a rebellion against what they see as unreasonable expectations of the job or of service. On the one hand, I think, okay, no one should be regarded as a slave to their employer. But on the other hand, it can come to disrespect employers and colleagues alike if the work simply gets pushed on to others and undervalues the work itself. Work is seen really only as drudgery with no duty, no obligation, no joy, no joy at all. Quiet quitting and its accompanying attitude can reduce work to a transactional function at best, an evil to be overcome on the way to leisure at worst. Quiet quitting elevates leisure to the central function of humanity, pushing work to a place of negative disdain, something to be avoided or engaged only to provide for that centerpiece of leisure. Playing is our default. Work is the necessary evil to get there. So much of our culture sees work in one of these unhealthy ways. Either work overtakes our lives so much that there's nothing other than drudgery, or work is simply a ticket to pay for our days off. 
As we embark on this year of study, I wonder how we see our work, our ministry work, our school work. Let's take a, a look at work in the Bible so that we can take some perspective on our own work at the outset of this year together. Now in Genesis, as we know, work is what people were created for. We, we do forget that though. We were created to do things. The work of worship, of recreation alongside God as part of the, that creation and partners in creation. Work, good work, is not a result of the fall. It's not. It's part of creation. It's part of why we were made. After the, work, the fall, of course, we see that work becomes toil. But even though it's toil and that the land must be worked by the sweat of the brow, even giving birth, <laughs> The new gift of life becomes labor, and it is work. <clears throat> In fact, the work of labor never finishes even as they grow. Yet, I have a 13-year-old, so there you go. Um, but it's not to be disdained. The work has fallen, but there's still good in it. There is still good in it. It's how God provides for our needs as we work together in the land. It's how we eat. It's how we share with others. It's how we thrive as a people. And work can be bad work when it loses its God focus and becomes human focused. The work of building the Tower of Babel, for example, was an attempt to enforce unnecessarily harsh conditions on others. People were treated as slaves. To build that edifice, it's been described as the first colonialism by some, as those people sought to make God work for them rather than the other way around, failing to recognize that God was always working for them anyway. Work is good work when it has balance. The land needs to rest. People need to rest. God owns a day that's his, and we're to keep off of it. No work on the day he claims for himself. And God rested after the good work of creation. He took time to sit back and enjoy his work and called it good. It wasn't perfect, as John Walton, the Old Testament scholar, reminded us a couple of years ago in the Hayward Lectures, which means there is still work to do but it was fit for the purpose for which it was created. It was good, and God rested from his labor. And that set a pattern for us. We're to rest too. This is a tough thing to do when you're working and studying and have a family and a church and, and, and. Think of all the responsibilities you hold as you sit here today. But without rest, our work becomes only toil. We're too tired to do it well. We get frustrated with ourselves and with others. We can become bitter. And we get frustrated, we get bitter, we turn into quiet quitters just to get some space. And that isn't good work. Good work requires balance, to be well rested, to have a space to enjoy what we have done, what we've accomplished. If we're overworked, the temptation is to desire to replace work with rest or relaxation to resist work. We can become quiet quitters if we're not careful. I think it's easy to happen, particularly in a culture today. But again, good rest leads to good work. The Bible, after all, elevates work to a high position. God rested for a day, but he worked six, not the other way around. Work is sought after. Happy are those who are chosen for work. And in light of the work of Christ, our work is redeemed and elevated as we become co-laborers in the kingdom of God. And that brings us to our passage today. This passage is trotted out probably more than any other when people think of a biblical attitude towards work. You've heard it, I'm sure. Work as unto the Lord and not human masters. 
Come on, this is the plea. Don't you know that you shouldn't think of yourself as working for people, your boss or your professor, but for God? And the implication is you'll work a lot harder if that's the case. And that is a good thing for society. But let's look more closely at this passage. These verses fall in the middle of a household code in Colossians. You'll learn more about that in your biblical studies classes if you haven't yet. The idea is that Christians were often thought to be rebellious and a threat to the established order. So the Apostle Paul is here appealing to a modified household code that would have been familiar to the hearers to reinforce, reinforce both Christian behaviors that would not place them at odds with wider society, but also frame it in a form that is distinctively Christian. That's why it falls in the middle of teaching about husbands and wives, parents and children. The slave-master relationship was a central one in the household and community order was reinforced while offering some fresh Christian perspective. The slaves here then were not to seek their freedom, but to obey their earthly masters. With the abolishment of slavery as a Christian good in itself, the fresh application is often made instead to employers and employees. Here, Paul coins a fascinating word that translates as eye service. Eye service. You've heard of the word lip service giving lip service to something, that is you agree with something verbally while thinking and doing something else. Well, eye service is a similar deception. Anthony Tisselton explains that eye service comes not from a pure heart, but appeals simply to external appearances. That is, to seem to work hard when you're only under their eye, only when they're watching you. Mole suggests that this makes them people pleasers, engaging in superficial work rather than real, genuine, heartfelt respect for God. This is lazy work. <laughs> Quote, not dusting behind the ornaments. <laughs> Don't look on my shelves. <clears throat> Just, we, we're moving house. We had to prepare our house. We got cleaners in. They were super cleaners. They were like amazing. I'm a terrible cleaner. I'm never home enough enough to clean. And I don't think I'll lie on my deathbed regretting that. Um, but, but I had to show some respectability to potential buyers. And so we, we paid some cleaners and they were, you know, patient <laughs> with me as I showed them through. But I got an email partway through the day, no, a text, a photograph from under our fridge, which they thought would amuse us. But instead, I was absolutely humiliated. <laughs> In 10 years, we did not once clean under the fridge, I have to say. And it showed, it showed. I'm, come on, do you clean under your fridge? All right, <laughs> thank you. I, I feel understood. <laughs> oh, but you know what it's like when you do the bare minimum? You don't dust behind the ornaments. Don't sweep under the wardrobe. Get it? It's just the minimum of work because that's what is seen. But in contrast, Paul pleads for them to have singleness of heart, where all their work was to be directed towards God who sees everything. They are to work wholeheartedly as for the Lord in everything they do. So even when the work is offered to people in the first instance, it really is for God. Dunn puts it this way, the implication is that one of the chief dangers of the slave status was a lack of personal motivation, which made all work a drudgery provided grudgingly, with a lack of effort, and always with a view to doing as little as one could get away with. Such an attitude can be sustained only at tremendous personal cost with other aspects of the personality switched off, withdrawn, or suppressed with a calculating motivation fed by resentment and bitterness. Sounds to me like quiet quitting. 
and the danger is to our own hearts. It can happen by decision or it can happen by accident when the work becomes overwhelming. And instead of asking for help, you decide to give eye service. And if and when you become overwhelmed in the term, this term, turn to your community for help. Your fellow students want to encourage you. Your professors want to support you. We're here for you, not over and against you. That's what we're here for. We want you to enjoy your work. We want you to get a lot out of it. We want you to finish well. And if you find yourself in that spot the night before an essay is due, and you think, just this once, I'll just cut and paste that piece from the internet. Just once, I'll make up some footnotes, just this once. I'll give eye service so as to please my professor. Don't do it. Ask for help. If you don't know what to do, you don't need to be ashamed because the Lord already knows that. And the Lord places us in community to help each other. And you could lose some marks, but so what? You don't want to lose yourself in the process. And so we get to the other side then of this passage. Those who have oversight of workers, whether employees or students or what have you, are to look out for their welfare. That's what we're here for as faculty and staff. We're not here for our own careers as much as we enjoy researching and publishing. And so we're here to form people for the church of Jesus Christ. That's what we're here for. Faculty, staff, all of us, we're here for you. The passage makes clear that in the redemptive work of Christ, there is no slave and free. We are all one in Christ Jesus. We all work as unto the Lord. In this passage in Colossians, the fact that slaves are addressed directly elevates their status. It reminds them that, and the masters, that they are on equal footing in Christ. He is the master of all of us, and he sees all that is done in the light and in secret. So those with responsibility for the work of others then should treat people right and fair. They should make sure that resources are shared amongst those who labor because we all share the same judgment seat. Good work for the Christian then is work that's done with full commitment, integrity and faithfulness characterized by kindness, fairness and a shared service to Christ. And for that reason, I think we can extend or even challenge this household code just a little in application of the whole Bible to the world today. So while Christians aren't to be regarded as disruptive to the peace of society, there is a role in making society better. And promotion of the common good, just as there was in the Roman Empire, there is a role in seeking and promoting good work for all. Martin Luther thought of good work as the ministry to which those who serve the church are called. Calvin extended this to suggest that all believers are called in their work, regardless of what it is, whether in service of the church or not. And the advantage of this, of course, is we want everyone to see meaning and purpose in their work. It doesn't have to, be, they don't have to be a minister to have a sense of calling to their job. We would want to affirm this in all kinds of cases, people in our churches and so on, whether doctors, lawyers, truck drivers, or street sweepers, they can all have a sense of calling to their job and serve wholeheartedly as though serving Christ himself. Miroslav Volf, however, has noted the ways that such of you can reinforce a negative status quo and bind people to work that is not good. If all work is a calling, how are we to understand the work of the children who sew footballs together in a windowless factory? 
How are we to understand the work of the woman who sits in a quarry pounding stones in the terrible heat all day in exchange for a crust of bread? How are we to understand the hundreds of thousands of those who eke out a living in the world's dumps every day, right now, today? Or the mind-numbing mechanization of the repetitive assembly line. Is this good work? Should there be joy in this as good work? I think while those individuals who love the Lord and find themselves in such a situation may understand their work as elevated because they do it for God and not for people, it gives them a sense of meaning and purpose and value that is good. But we should not therefore tell them that's their calling. <laughs> as though the Lord would desire such misery for them. We should not say, well, it's their calling, and then fail to work against the injustices that leave them with lives, with few choices, and little hope. If we believe we were created for good work, then we believe all people were created to do good work. So it won't do in such situations to say to that child or that woman or that man, work harder and for little reward and be joyful because you're working for God and not for people. That won't do at all. Some commentators then see the potential for inherent injustice in this passage. Slaves don't kick up a stink. Don't fight for your rights. Workers, keep quiet and do what you're told. You're doing it for God, not for people. And while I'm not sure this interpretation tells the whole story, there are reminders from elsewhere in scripture that the slave is to be welcomed as a brother or a sister. There's a sense that Christianity does upset the social order, as perhaps some had feared. So if you're in a work situation that is truly oppressive and unjust, it doesn't mean that's your calling and you have to stay where you are. It may be, but you have to work that out with God. Um, <clears throat> it, it, no one can enforce that upon you. And there's, you don't have to think that there's no alternative but to embrace an unjust system as part of what it means to please God. This is not our calling. But it also doesn't mean that our human default position is leisure and that work is just there to fill the gaps. <clears throat> I was told several times in the summer by people who really don't know me very well, Anna, you work too hard. I, I'm not even sure how to take that, really. I work hard, yes, but what is too hard? What is too hard? I get breaks. I have balance. I'm deeply, deeply joyful in the work I do here. Look, I look at your faces, I can't help but smile. I am joyful in the work. I really love my work. I love the people I have the privilege here of serving with every day. It's wonderful work. I don't need to do it for eye service, even though being in the public eye sometimes comes with the job. I don't need that. It's nice once in a while, especially if it comes from the board, if they think, you know, it's good to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, once in a while, we'd probably need that. But most of all, I look at what we're called to do here, and when we're all working hard in the same direction, there is joy not only in the result, certainly in the result, but there's joy also in the toil, day to day. So we have seen that work is good, that in our working relationships, we should be faithful and not shirk our commitments and be joyful about good work. So what about us here this year, on the verge of this year? As Paul said to Timothy, study to show yourself approved, a worker who doesn't need to be ashamed, clean under the furniture and not only around it. Do the extra readings, dig around deeper for the answers, don't settle 
for the easy response. You may never have another opportunity just like this one. Good libraries, a supportive faculty and staff, the encouragement of colleagues to do this good work. Don't just skate through your education and do the bare minimum to get through. If you do that, you'll not only shortchange yourself, but those in the future who will depend on your leadership for their own spiritual growth and well-being. Some of these will be light days when things come easy. <clears throat> Many of these days will be hard when you wrestle with scripture and ideas and the spirit seems to tear you up and put you together again. The same but different. <laughs> this is hard work, but it's good work because you're being formed through your studies to be who you need to be to serve God's people with skill, with faithfulness, and with integrity. But remember, faculty are here because we love this work, but we don't need to read 25 essays on recapitulation. Stuart doesn't need to hear 25 sermons on whatever it is, as much as he loves that. 29 sermons, there you go. Uh, that's not for his edification. You need to write that essay, and you need to preach that sermon, and you need the input that will come so that you will get better and stronger and form better. So don't do it to give eye service, that is to please the prof or just get the A. Though if your prof, prof is pleased, that's always nice. And A's are nice. But do it because in your work, you're partnering with Jesus working together on what he's doing in your life, working together on what he wants to do through your life. Now, sometimes you might find yourself in that corner and you just have to get it done and it'll frustrate you. Just get it done and move on. But in as much as it lies with you, take this good work of studying seriously. Clear the decks of distractions, whatever you have to do that is unnecessary, take it off your plate because especially those of you who are both ministering and studying at the same time, take the extras away. Spend the time to focus. Be present to this learning community as much as you can, whether on site or online, because the work is better when it's shared and we need you. And find your balance so you can be attentive to your family and your friends, even if they're far away. Take a day off so that you can rest. Look back on your work with joyful gratitude and look ahead with eager anticipation rather than dread and fearfulness. And make sure you don't quiet quit your studies because you will shortchange those who rely on your spiritual leadership wherever you serve during or beyond your studies. The temptations are great in this world. The distractions are constant in this world we live in, absolutely constant. And we could spend all of our time doing almost anything else. There's so many reasons to neglect the work and get by with the bare minimum. But if you do that, you might finish, but you won't know the joy of good work. Remember that ministry is a marathon and never a sprint. As we heard during the retreat together last week, ministry is good work. It's hard work, but it's good. And there's nothing that produces deeper joy than knowing you are right where God wants you. Partnering, partnering with God with what he's doing alongside his co-laborers who share a common commitment. If we're formed by the stories we tell, we need to tell the stories this year of the joy of good work that God has called us to. 
and that we're doing together. Let's hear those stories this year because in this world we find so little joy in anything these days. Our work is joy, ultimately, because it's not our work at all. It is God's work. In Ephesians, for we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so we may walk in them. It can't get any easier when we learn to turn ourselves over to the Spirit of God. We're not created to sit in a cloud with a harp. It sounds like a good idea some days, like to escape. That's not what we were made for. We were created to be the vessels through whom God accomplishes his purposes for the church and the world. What an honor. What an overwhelming, uh, wonderful, joyful responsibility. Who else today is praying for our campus? We do not know, but we are. We were created to be those vessels through whom God accomplishes his purposes for the church and the world. And let me finish with this encouragement. Remember that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. He will complete his work in you. So at the outset of this year, let's resolve together to share the tough times, to be honest when we're struggling, that's part of the work. But even in the struggling, there is joy when you know you don't struggle alone. <laughs> the work is shared. Set your schedule so you have breaks, build it in right from the beginning. And on the days when that just isn't possible, and sometimes it just isn't possible in human terms, then pray. Because the source of all our work can only be Christ ourself, who labors not only alongside of us, but in us and through us. And know that the true joy of work comes when we realize that all we have to do is make ourselves available to him as he becomes greater and we become less and we see him do great things when we offer ourselves to him. This is work. As it was for the queen, it is our duty. As it was for my friend Brad, uh, may it also be our joy. And God bless you as we head into this term. Amen. Thank you for joining us in this Acadia Divinity College Chapel podcast. You can follow us on social media. Discover more on our website at acadiadiv.ca or join us for chapel on a Wednesday. <laughs>